Let us join together in prayer. Spirit of the living God, guide our hearts and minds for what you have for us this day. <clears throat> Amen. There are certain memorial services that stay imprinted on one's heart. Years ago, I remember I sat at the front of the church with its huge bouquets of balloons and watched as 32nd graders from the local elementary school filed into church and filled up the front pews. There were several teachers and the school principals scattered in the crowd along with the congregation members. The children and school staff were there to support their student, their friend, their classmate, Megan, who had lost her twin sister, Anna. And the second graders were also there because they too were grieving the passing of Anna because she was also a member of their classroom as well as, as the special education classroom a few doors down the hall. I didn't meet the family at church, although the parents were members. I met them several times at the hospital on many occasions. It had been a struggle for the family because of the lung issues that frequently threatened the life of Anna. Anna and Megan's mother, Jill, carried lots of anger over the lack of what she identified as inappropriate care for her daughter in the early years of her life. Her response was to go to nursing school and become a pediatric nurse specialist. In her rage against what she deemed as inadequate care, she was able to stand as an ally and skilled advocate for her daughter. With her degree came an empowered voice for Anna, both in the hospital and also in the special needs program of the school. It was a long time before I was given the information that there had been a third daughter, a triplet, that had died earlier. The service and preparing for that service allowed me to reflect on several systems and how they had changed. But they had not changed without a great deal of anger and rage against systems that held a bias against physically challenged children. Advocating for changes in hospital care of children is an arduous process. Advocating for special needs classrooms that also allow for time with physically able children also takes an enormous commitment to meet with school boards, teachers, principals. It sometimes takes an intensely channeled anger for systems to change. I don't want to offend anyone, but as a child, my Sunday school had the familiar old image of Solomon's painting of Jesus, which for me had the look 
for an old Breck shampoo commercial. If one grows up with that image, it is very difficult to imagine Jesus dealing with his own anger, an anger that erupted from seeing God's mandate distorted. Our story is told in all four Gospels. However, John is the only one that deals with it in the opening pages. John places this story up front. It's a story about values. The setting is the Passover celebration. The crowds are pouring into the city. Scholars inform us that Jerusalem would swell from some 50,000 to approximately 190,000. Every hotel and B&B had a brisk business. And John is making a theological statement. The Passover story relates to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is also a story about conflicted values, values embraced by the religious structure. The purpose of including this story is to direct it to the church. In an attempt to win over his ungrateful subjects, Herod the Great had begun a massive restoration and expansion of the temple that was still underway in Jesus' day. In spite of the priests burning incense, myrrh, cinnamon, saffron, and frankincense, nothing could mask the stench of slaughter. No one present at the time of Jesus wielding his whip of cords would have forgotten that encounter. Jesus' anger fuels his actions. He begins to make his political and religious statement. The sacrifices came to a halt. Stomping, mooing, cattle, panic sheep, all scrambling in a chaotic mass while servants attempted to herd them to safety over manure-covered floors. The butchering ceased. Cages of squawking birds began to be moved to a safe location. And while more and more frantic officials scrambled to make their way through the throngs to put a stop to the wild man, the money changers frantically scrambled to gather their scattered coins. The money changer business was about exchanging the worshippers' coins in the only coins that could be used in the temple. They are horrified by Jesus' destruction of their business. As Riza Aslan states in his book, Zealot, he says, think of the temple as a kind of feudal state, employing thousands of priests, singers, porters, servants, and ministers, while maintaining vast tracts of fer fertile land tilled by temple slaves on behalf of the high priest and for his benefit. If one looks at the temple tax along with the profits made from the money changers, which enabled the temple to take a cut, it is easy to catch a glimpse of just how threatening Jesus was to the whole system.
All those stunned witnesses of that long ago day were baffled by Jesus' words, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. No one got it, including his distraught family and his followers. It took the death of Jesus for the disciples to understand that he was talking about his own body. Ever since the church began, we have been wrestling with these stories and have attempted to make sense of them and to discern what it has to say to us today. Jesus was living his values and vision by breaking the rules that kept the poor destitute and powerless. In overturning tables, he was to overturn the structure and demanded a new way of life that authentically followed God. Somehow, because the temple is a place one goes to to meet God, I always get just a bit squirmy dealing with this text in a worship service. Jesus didn't begin his frustrations by setting up a task force to deal with the issues that were bothering him. And surely there must have been some version of the pastoral relations committee he could have gone to. But what he did was messy. Truth-telling can be viewed as threatening. Whenever I preach on this text, I feel the discomfort of having to look at the structure and function of the church I am serving, and then I'm forced to look at myself. I have to ask, where am I still playing it safe? Where am I not willing to create discomforting waves? Where am I staying numb? When we lost our niece, Vicki Hoagie, who died at the hands of a drunk driver at the age of 19, I learned to have a great appreciation for the founder of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. It was the founder's personal rage over the injustice of her daughter's death that led to the development of a cause that fights for justice for those who have become victims. The thrust of this Jesus story parallels the ministry of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Prophets don't get many dinner invitations. Every group in any church that seeks to make systemic changes based on their understanding of Jesus' life and teachings will be confronted. It is often a very tough and messy journey. My friend Melinda Bates, whose ministry is working with women in Latin America who have been victims of domestic violence, or have been caught up in human trafficking, has used her gifts to bring healing. She utilizes retreats that focus more on artwork than on words. She helps women and children begin to heal from the deep physical and emotional scars that they carry. Before the pandemic, she made one of her many trips 
to Deborah's house, located on the outskirts of Tijuana, where she had been asked to come so many times to help women who have escaped violence. Deborah's house is the outcome of a stand of, went, taken by Mexican women who refused to accept the nose of the male church leadership who did not see the need to care for women who had been violated and had no support. In the church community, the women's anger and commitment to follow Jesus empowered them to break away from the male structure of the church. The women have formed a new community of safety for abused women. And in that community, they teach skills such as furniture making, jewelry making, and sewing, so that the women can support themselves and their children upon leaving and beginning a new life. Our own Mennonite Central Committee was formed in 1920. The painful irony is that it was founded in Chicago to provide food for the starving Mennonites in Ukraine in the wake of the Russian Revolution. It was then deemed important to expand their aid to help all those who were suffering in Ukraine. And I suspect that some of us in this meeting house have distant relatives in Ukraine who are now struggling to survive. Watching the nightly news, we are exposed to the reality of the Ukrainian lives as we witness the lines of people with babies and young children pushing to get safely onto trains and buses, hoping beyond hope to reach safety. I listened with horror as I heard the story of the 13-year-old boy sent off to travel 600 miles on his own to Poland, carrying just a small bag of food and a phone number printed in ink on his hand. I can only imagine the desperation that parents must be experiencing as to how to protect their children. Every once in a while, there are stories and images that I cling to. One was a picture of a lineup of baby strollers and carriages all along the border of Poland for those who were coming in for their use, for their need, for their welcome. I cherish the work of our own MCC who are providing food, medications, temporary emergency housing, blankets, and food bags. Yes, we can offer our dollars for the work. And they also ask that we contact our members of Congress to call for more local peacekeeping efforts. These stories follow in the way of Jesus. They each are about what Jesus was about. He was grounded in the traditional, but the traditional didn't contain him. He constantly pushed the religious boundaries as well as the political boundaries. He was a radical. 
He offered the kind of compassion and care that called folks to new life, a transformed life. He had the audacity to confront the religious structures because the temple crowd had manipulated them to suit their own greedy desires. He took on the disordered systems of his day. Every stand for justice seems to take some kind of boundary pushing, and every stand takes courage. To take a stand for justice demands a letting go and an openness to God's transforming call to action. So we are invited into the story. Are we open to being reshaped by God? In this unique in-between time, time as we are hopefully coming out of a pandemic, time that we are looking for a new staff member, a time when we are looking towards celebrating our 100th anniversary. What is God's call on our community of faith? In this season of Lent, as we seek to turn from deception and lean into the life-giving ways of Jesus, what are we being called to let go of? And where are we being invited to take on a new venture? We come with our weaknesses and our strengths. We come struggling to make right choices. We long for meaning and many of us desire transformation. We come knowing that to be part of a faith community offers us an opportunity to grow. May we risk saying yes to God's call. May it be so. Amen.